Welcome back to the 115th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why America needs a spiritual renaissance, at least from the point of view of someone on the left, the long depression that we've been facing as Americans from a perspective on the right, and how some activists have used geofencing to really compromise uh, people's privacy. And I think that one's a little bit scary, and that will be the last one that we get to today. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So both sides of the American political aisle or the American political debate, they offer reasons as to why America seems to be discontent or Americans seem to be discontent with the current state of politics. And of course, I have two different articles today that will highlight different reasons to why that's the case. But before we get into those, if you have any thoughts, comment them down in the comment section, and I'd love to hear what you all have to say. And maybe after you hear these articles, you'll have a different opinion. All right, so our first one comes from the Daily Beast. And this one, it's called, The Left Needs a Spiritual Renaissance. So does America. So, when you hear spiritual renaissance, you're probably thinking, oh no, this this guy, he's going to talk to me about religion. He's going to talk to me about the Lord and our Savior and everything of that nature. And that's not necessarily what this author is getting at. I think they use spirituality for a very specific reason in that it doesn't necessarily have to be religious, but it could even be just believing that the universe is somehow sentient or conscious there's something bigger than us is basically what they're getting at. And I think it's an interesting point of view that this person brings up. And normally from the left, you don't always see this sort of talking. And when I saw this article in Daily Beast, I was very intrigued because they're a news organization or a news posting website that tends to be pretty far on the left or at least offer some hot takes from my differing point of view. All right, so let's get to the quote-unquote deep truth. This is how the author sets up the premise. Quote, the deep truth is that American life needs a radical reframe, one that will require more than smart policy proposals, vague promises of growth, or even thundering denunciations of our opponents. If we're going to pull out of this national nosedive, left politics needs a spiritual renaissance. For approximately 40 years, Americans across the spectrum have been working within a picture of a society that is broadly known as neoliberalism. And, in its simple formation, neoliberalism defines the good society as a level playing field where everyone is invited to compete for scarce commodities of status and wealth, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, etc., so before we go on with the rest of this quote, this may be an angle that you're used to from people on the left and even people on the right, is that this neoliberal worldview has actually done more harm than good for America. And I don't necessarily know if on the premise alone I agree, 
Now, if you pose to me that maybe it's time to move past a neoliberal worldview, I would definitely entertain that conversation because we're moving into different times. It is not the 1920s anymore, the 1940s. We're no longer coming out of a world war where we, as America, have to facilitate the trade. We have to help rebuild Europe. We're going to help all these other nations and, you know, make democracy prosper and have free markets everywhere across the world, we are living in a different time. And of course, different times require different systems in place to allow not only us to grow and survive, but also to allow other players to come to the stage and bring their own unique technologies and cultures and things like that. Though I do believe America's culture is is pretty darn good, but I am biased, and that's because I live in America. But to say that the neoliberal order has had its day, there, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of that. I think there is some value to it, but that is definitely a conversation that needs to be entertained, especially if, as this author will point out, there are holes in the system that doesn't necessarily help everybody. And of course, you know, in America, we try to make it so that everybody does have an even playing field. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about our nations. No matter where you come from, even if you are born in the backwater of backwater locations, you still have an opportunity, if you choose to participate, to build yourself up, to come out of that situation. Is it going to be as easy as somebody else who was born in a better location with better circumstances? No. But you could still put in that work and you can still try to succeed. And that's what the author continue, continues with here. Quote, the market, fetishized by most neoliberals as the just and ethical arbiter of all things, decides the outcomes, meaning the winners fully deserve their winnings and the losers deserve their losings. In the interest of basic decency and stability, society may be willing to subsidize the lives of poor people, but only grudgingly and with plenty of strings attached, end quote. And so they speak about the market. Oh, yeah, losers are losers, winners are winners. And then they kind of had this little slight jab there at the end, which is, oh, no, 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 you know, we'll, we'll subsidize some of the poor people. We'll have all these programs, but we really don't want to give up our money. We're greedy Americans. We don't want to give up our money, but we understand, you know, society needs to thrive, so we'll give up a little bit here or there. We'll make sure there are some safety nets in position. And while I do agree that a lot of Americans are greedy, or I'd say that, as a person who is a, a money lover himself, they at least don't want to let go of their money as easily as would be ideal in a very generous society. And when I first read that, I was like, okay, I see where this author is going. And I think you can too. At least in the ideal world, in the America that was founded on more religious values. Now, a lot of people argue this and they don't say God, they say the Creator, but you can't deny that when America was founded, it was a majority Christian nation. And in that sort of nation, the free market reigns and we do support the people that are below us in society but not through welfare programs, not through government overreach, not through government taxation to give to other people. It's, oh, okay, my neighbor Johnny, he just had a hard time. He lost his job. You know, he has to feed his family. Maybe we can give him some of our extra 
crops this month. Maybe we can give them a little bit of money to help them out. We go to church and we give donations or we give money. And then nowadays, especially, they can go out, buy food, have food drives, maybe offer a space for people to live some nights of the week if they want to put up cots in the bottom part of their church. So in a Christian society, and to be honest, a more spiritual society, one where we understand the inherent value of people purely for existing, whether that's because you believe God created us in his image or because as a member of this universe, you simply have value, then you're more inclined to give more generously to those people rather than saying begrudgingly, oh, we'll give this money to this person who has hard times. No, no, no. I view you, I view them, that person that's fallen on hard times who may be on the streets, I view them as having innate value as a human being. And I want to give generously to them because I believe that there's more to life than just gaining money. There's a cosmic order. There is something bigger than me going on. So when I first read that, I was like, okay, I can see where this author is coming from. And even if I don't agree with all the points about neoliberalism, I do agree that there is a lot of value to a spiritual or at least a conscious society of the play between the fact that, well, you are the most important thing in your life because that is how you view yourself. If you don't exist, then you have no experiences. So, of course, we're going to play to the idea that, oh, yes, I'm the most important. And in a market society, that leads you to say, I'm the most important. I need to get money. I need to be valued. I need to be assessed as valuable in the market. Therefore, I deserve this money. I need this money, which then makes you greedy versus the idea that we're a society. And I don't want just me to thrive. I want the society to thrive so my kids can thrive, so other people can thrive. And one of those is a lot easier to achieve in a spiritual world. And the other one is not necessarily harder, but maybe discouraged a little bit more. All right, so he obviously talks about this play that we're, that I just discussed. But what happens when we don't actually have the spirituality? Obviously, you may know. You live in a world where we are less spiritual than before. But he describes this, this emptiness that some Americans feel. And I really want to highlight this before we move on to the next article because I think it's an important side effect of the lack of spirituality. Quote, the emptiness so many Americans feel is related to public life stubbornly grounded in this failed neoliberal consensus, which tacitly instructs us that consumerism, wealth accumulation, and individual achievement are the main paths to happiness. It is almost impossible to be happy and fulfilled without a certain degree of financial security. So, before I go on again, I don't necessarily agree or disagree with that statement full out. I think that, yeah, it can be hard to be happy and to be making sure that you're focusing on the things that matter to you when you don't have financial security. But also, some people don't necessarily have the most stable finances, and they're you know able to take solace or a moment of happiness with their family. So I don't necessarily think it's necessary, and I think that's a little bit of the neoliberal worldview kind of creeping in here. But also notice that this author is saying that, well, this consumerist nature is something that is 
uh, it's something that we find in this neoliberal worldview. And I think that's a little bit short-sighted. I think this consumerist mentality, this materialistic mentality, is something that has always sat with America, and not even just America, with humans, because we're obsessed with the material world. We're obsessed with things that exist, that are tangible, that we can get our hands on, products that could maybe make our life a little bit easier or just provide us a little bit of joy. It's a way of obsessing about this material world that we live in and not necessarily focusing on the bigger ideas that we don't address all the time or, you know, a way to escape thinking about what comes after. It's a way to make life on this earth meaningful. So I wouldn't just say that's a neoliberal problem. I would say that's a human overall, a, a humanity problem. Because, you know, you see quotes from the Bible, you see quotes from the Taoist religion in China, you see a lot of different historical figures pointing out materialism and saying that it's a problem. And that was way before neoliberalism became a thing. But let's get back to what they're talking about. Quote, economic inequality is a plague that undermines our social bonds and damages our national psyche. Prosperity can allow us to be more generous and creative. Social goods that are difficult to contemplate when you're struggling for basic survival. But the pursuit of material gain simply for the sake of material gain rarely brings fulfillment. Americans do not want a firm economic floor that guarantees everybody has access to the necessities of life. But they also want our politics to be organized around the question of what actually makes a society good. And this is why we need spirituality. At its core, it's an attempt to ask and answer deep fundamental questions about the world, the self, and society, end quote. And I think that's the one thing I want to leave you with, that when you have spirituality, you think beyond this material world. Like I said, you take on those bigger questions. You ask, what's the meaning? What's my purpose? How do I best fulfill A, B, C, D? How do I best serve my family? So on and so forth. So I'll leave you with that one. Maybe we need a little bit more spirituality in our lives. All right, let's jump to the next article. This one comes from the American Institute for Economic Research, America's Long Depression. So you may be thinking, okay, wait, hold on. Is he talking about, is he talking about the mental state depression or is it talking about economic depression because it's coming from the American Institute of American uh, Economic Research? And, it, you know, it actually plays with a little bit of both. They're trying to be clever here. But it's not a outright depression like most people would think about it. They frame it in a very interesting way. So let's jump into it, shall we? Quote, is America in a recession already? Or does a definite downturn still loom on the horizon? The real question is, what difference does it make? Given that for decades the U.S. economy has grown much more slowly than it could have. Over 30 years... A $50,000 real per capita income at 1% compounding annual growth is about $67,000, while at just 2%, it grows over to $90,000. Economic pundits worry about the 67 dropping to 66 next year, but what they should focus on is why the nation hasn't achieved the 90000 level. 
the real question we should be asking, in other words, is why growth in inflation-adjusted output per American became and remains anemic. So I'm pretty sure you're all smart enough to understand what they're getting at here. But they're just saying, hey, we're not growing quickly enough. In the past, it, we made $50,000, and now, 30 years later, if you kept that same wage and you just applied growth due to uh, inflation or caused by inflation, the raising of your wealth, then it's $67,000. I mean, hey, you, you're making more money. That's what it sounds like, right? But if it was doubled, if the growth of the economy was doubled, it could have been $90,000. And the battle is always on public perception. Well, we want to make sure that it doesn't fall, that you're not actually making less money, that you can actually make more money to provide for your family and so on and so forth. But by not having a fast-growing, a strong economy that is, mm, how would you say it very nicely, not screwing up, basically, then you would actually have more real wages over time per capita. And I think that's an interesting perspective. And of course, it's easy to make that sort of criticism now and from the outside. But they have a interesting reason as to why this is the case and what can be done. Because of course, when you're standing on the outside, you can say a lot of things. But if you don't offer at least some sort of solution, or at least if you don't facilitate a debate where somebody can offer a type of solution, then, you know, you're just kind of a talking head spewing some things around here and there. But they do offer a solution, or at least they offer a reason as to why this is happening, which then in turn actually highlights a solution. Quote, it was not cultural change, whatever that means. It was a change in incentives brought about by the U.S. federal government, which has grown steadily, if not monotonically, since Franklin Delano Roosevelt's failed New Deal in the 1930s. Millions, then billions, and perhaps soon trillions can be had in the back rooms of the nation's capitals. Dollars taken from the taxpayers' pockets and placed in the hands of bureaucrats and their toadies. American colonists feared just this state of affairs. They called it corruption and fought a revolution to combat it. So what he's highlighting here is that the state continues to grow, and in order to continue to grow, it needs to take more money from its people. So it increases tax rates, which therefore suppresses the economy and keeps it from growing at a more rapid rate. Because when that extra tax dollars, because you may be thinking, okay, well, hey, I mean, yeah, the government needs some money, and if they raise taxes, I don't necessarily want to lose my money, but how does that actually slow the growth of the economy in such a drastic way over 30 years. And then you're going to go back and think about your economics class and you're going to say, oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, no. If that person has to give up $30,000 a year that they're making, they can't spend that $30,000 on groceries, on buying that new Lexus that they may want, on buying a few different things for their kids, you know, playing into that consumerist society that we were talking about before but they're taking that extra $30,000 out of the economy that could be dispersed in multiple different locations, or at least even given to an investment banker who may give it to a, may buy some shares of a startup company that may be making some really great technology, creating new jobs. You see how if that money is siphoned out of the economy, 
it can have a negative ripple effect because there's less money being dispersed in other places of the economy. Oh, look at that. And it's almost as if it's done on purpose. And, you know, it is done on purpose sometimes. Taxes are raised through different processes in order to take money out of the money supply so that inflation doesn't run too rampant. We may be seeing some of those practices here in the future since raising interest rates isn't necessarily doing enough. I mean, you do see a lot of that with the proposed taxes in place that Bernie would want to do, which is a small, basically a microtransaction tax on every single stock exchange or stock trade that would happen on on Wall Street. So we do see these practices, and it is a idea of how to tamp down on inflation, but that's me getting a little bit far away from the point that the author is trying to get at here. What they're trying to highlight is that this huge government bloat that we experience is not good for America, because if the government bloats, then they are going to have more expenses. If they have a large bureaucracy where they have some 2,000 employees at an agency that barely does anything and doesn't help the American people, and they have to raise taxes or come up with a creative tax in order to fund that bureaucracy, that is money that is not being spent the most efficient way possible in the free market. Rather, it's being spent on the bureaucracy. So you can see where the author is coming from. Basically, our money gets taxed, and it's not that these bureaucrats are elected by us. No, no, they're appointed. So it's not like our money is going towards an agency that we have appointed, that we have given the mandate to aid us, to wield power over us. No, no, they're going to bureaucrats who are making decisions for us about our lives. And the author is kind of comparing it to the colonists here saying, this is the tyranny they were worried about. Money going to the back rooms and just being spent however the government wants rather than actually making sure that the people are involved in the process. Quote, they understood that their money funded placemen or well-connected people with government seniorities and wealthy recipients of government debt, interest payments. The colonists feared that the state's people and the public creditors of the British government would eventually use its power to, as the Declaration of Independence put it, eat our substance. Or in other words, they foresaw a day when taxes would impoverish them. End quote. And that's because so much of the tax burden would be levied on them that they wouldn't be able to survive. So much of their hard-earned money would be taken away in order to propagate a state, a bureaucratic state, that is not actually serving their best interests. And that's why the saying goes, no taxation without representation. If you're going to tax us, we need a voice in this system. And I would say it goes even further. If you're going to tax us nowadays, we should have some say over what's going on in these bureaucracies. And of course, you do to some degree. You know, Whoever you elect in the office can, can sometimes appoint new heads to these agencies and come up with mandates that maybe fire a few different people, but it's very hard once these bureaucracies are embedded into the American system to get them to be undone, even if you put in someone who you want and says politically that, oh, it's part of their political program, it's part of their platform, oh, we're going to clear out those bureaucracies. It's a lot easier said than done. So 
that's really talking about the bloat and how it is slowly stripping the American people of, and not just America, it's happening in lots of different countries as well, but how bureaucratic bloat, large government, is slowly stripping people of their, their money and how this naturally hurts the economy and it limits the growth of the economy. And you can again see the, the contrast between the first two articles. One's talking about a neoliberal world order that's too focused on money, too focused on the finances of the nation and how we need to have a spiritual renaissance so that we are able to focus on more than just money, that we should be able to focus on the small things in life that make it valuable, helping other people, providing a safe location for the worst off in our communities and gaining a sense of meaning from that. And then you also see the other side of the argument, which is, okay, we want the market to thrive so that we can thrive as a people and we can feel secure in our financial state, which, if you remember from the first article, is a very important part, at least from their point of view, of being happy, which I don't necessarily agree with all the way, but there is something there to that. And you can kind of see how they contrast each other. One's saying the market's not all that there is. The other one's saying that the market is extremely important. But you can also see where they agree, which is people don't necessarily feel financially secure. And the current system isn't serving them the best. And we need a few different reasons, reformations, so to speak. We need a few different reforms on different aspects of the system in order to make it work. And that's why I wanted to pull out both of these articles. Because it says, okay, the left and the right both acknowledge that America is not what it could be right now. And there are very different reasons or opinions as to why that's the case. But, but, both of their systems could be implemented. You could have a spiritual renaissance while also limiting some of the bloat from the government. And though they're speaking about the same thing maybe being the heart of the problem, they're offering different solutions that don't actually combat one another and don't actually make the other one harder. And it's a beautiful synthesis And why I'm pointing it out. You may be listening and saying, Alex, I've made it this far. Come on, move on to the next article. You talked about this really cool geofencing article. But I think there's a beautiful synthesis here between the two sides where both of these policies can be enacted. They're both meant to help the American people and they don't naturally conflict with one another in the solutions. It's not like oh, if we implement the spirituality aspect that of the first article, we can't implement the limiting the government bloat and growth on the other one. We can do both of these, and we can have a more prosperous America all, the, all around. And I think this is something that we need to stop getting locked into. Oh, the left has the solution. The right has the solution. Oh, no, no, they're going to argue against the solution because it's not their solution. Well, both of these solutions can work, and they can both be proposed, and they don't have to just be implemented one or the other. Both of them can be put in place and both of them can help reshape America and help it continue to grow and prosper and the people prosper into the future. I know that was a little bit of a long-winded one, but it's something that I've been thinking about and this, you know, this tension between left and right, it, sometimes it really frustrates me because they're talking past each other. They could implement whatever both of them want to implement just in creative ways, but no, no, no. It's all about, well, it's a left-wing policy, it's a right-wing policy. No, no, we can't have that conversation. No, no, we're not going to support somebody else's side. It's, it's just frustrating. All right. 
now that you've got a little bit of my, my heated side, oh, big angry Alex, let's jump to our last article. It's going to be a really quick one, but it is something that caught my eye and was a little bit concerning in my mind. This one comes from Jezebel. Wisconsin activist group used geofencing around abortion clinics to dissuade patients. So I'll just jump straight into the quote here because there's not much you can preface with that. Quote, an anti-abortion group in Wisconsin used geofencing to target patients at Planned Parenthood and other reproductive health clinics with ads promoting bogus abortion reversal, according to a bombshell Washington Street Journal report published Thursday. The group Veritas Society, a nonprofit fund created by Wisconsin Right to Life, reportedly used a marketing gimmick to place anti-abortion ads in users' Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat feeds between November 2019 through late 2022. Geofencing refers to the location-based technique that allows an advertiser, or say an anti-abortion group, to direct specific ads to smartphone users and their social feeds in a particular area. Anti-abortion groups have taken advantage of this targeting ad opportunities to reach prospective patients at reproductive health clinics and other highly sensitive locations, end quote. And I want you to remove the abortion issue from this for a minute, because that is a hotly debated topic. And no matter what side you come down on it, it's going to affect your bias in this situation. If you're pro-life, you may say, oh, well, yeah, no, 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 we want to make sure that these people who go into these clinics have all the information possible so that they don't give up the life of their baby. And if you're on the pro-choice side, uh, well, no, no, this is outrageous that they're being targeted when they're going to a really sensitive place where they have to make a really hard decision and they're being bombarded with information. I understand both of those perspectives. I understand why it would be outrageous on either side, but remove abortion from this for a second. Geofencing is scary on its own, and the fact that it is being used in this way is even scarier. The fact that people are willing to say, okay, you know what, we are going to target ads at you at one of the most sensitive times, when you are making one of the hardest decisions of your life. I think that is morally reprehensible, just because this person is, not just because actually, This person is having a hard time. They're making a very, very hard decision. And like I said, I don't care what you think the outcome of that decision should be. That doesn't matter. You should not be bombarding them with pro-life or pro-choice material. They should be able to make this decision unabated. And what's even scarier is this can be used to influence people in a very dangerous way. Imagine a left-wing organization. And I'm saying this for the people who are pro-life. Imagine a left-wing organization put a geofence around your church, because if you're pro-life, you're more than likely religious, but that is a big assumption on my mind. Imagine you're religious, and they put a geofence around your church, and if your kid goes to the bathroom and they start scrolling through social media for one minute, they start getting anti-Christian, anti-church, anti-religion ads snapping th- coming up through their Snapchat feed. And you may be saying, well, I won't give my kid a phone for that reason, so on and so forth. But I want you to get rid of all the extraneous things and just think about, okay, this is happening. And my kid is getting targeted with anti-religious material. Would you think that's okay? Would you think that is a violation of the privacy of the holiness of that church? 
Do you think that they're invading you at a time when you are trying to enjoy the word of the Lord, when you are trying to have a private, intimate setting with your family and the people around you in your church and celebrating God? Do you think that would be a little bit of an invasion of your privacy or at least an invasion into that sacred world that, or sacred place that you're trying to create? I would think a lot of people would say yes. And that is scary to me. The fact that we are at the point where you don't like something so much that you can't stand something so much that you are going to create a geofence around a particular area and target it with ads, that is scary. Imagine if someone created a geofence in your house and targeted you with very specific household ads. That doesn't sound too bad. You know, okay, you're at home. Okay, Google knows that you're at home. It wants you to buy oh, the new Google HomePod. Oh, the new consumerist thing. Oh, there's this ultra-fine toilet paper, and they're going to target you with it. You know, that's a little bit creepy in my mind. And I, as a business major, I am torn. I do understand the value of geofencing. If they put a geofence around a mall, and it gives you ads of companies that are in the mall, I think there's value to that. And I also understand the value, like I said, as a business person of making sure that when you are paying for ads, that they actually have the highest likelihood of working. And if you do geofencing a particular area and it's shown over time that people that go to this one store also tend to go to this other store and you geofence that store and then bombard the people there with an ad for the other store, I think there's value to that. But when we start doing it for activist groups, when we start doing it to push people politically rather than just advertise a good, that is when I think it gets extremely, extremely scary. And it is something that we need to seriously think about in this age of interconnectivity when everybody can have your location and everybody can have your ad data. But that's enough for on that one. Like I said, scary stuff. If you want to read the article, it'll be linked in the description. Let's jump to our daily delight so we can end on a positive note and not on this negative or angry Alex. Ooh, big angry Alex. Ooh. Our daily delight comes from Laughing Squid. A pair of laundry-loving rescue prairie dogs live their best life. You know, animals, when raising them, it can be an overwhelming process for some, but rewarding nonetheless. Quote, an adorable pair of rescue prairie dogs named Pablo and Pedro live a very good life despite having a rough beginning. Someone adopted these adorable, this adorable duo as pets, but they were soon surrendered after the person realized how much work it would be. Luckily, they were adopted into a loving home where they have had the full run of the house. End quote. And you know, when these two finally found their forever home, they got comfortable pretty darn quickly. And this next quote is from their owner. They quote, they yahoo all the time. It's a sign of greeting. It's not enough to just be laying next to you. They have to be on top of you. We call them the productivity suckers. They will burrow in like that's what they do in their natural habitat. So we keep finding them in the laundry basket and they love to sleep there. They are so sweet and they will not ever leave you alone, end quote. And if you want to see the cute photos or videos of pa Pablo and P Pedro, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. 
Also, down there, you'll find the link to Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, Google Podcasts, where it is posted so you can download it and listen to the podcast on the go, as well as a link to the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post a link to the podcast directly, or the YouTube video directly, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And also, right now, I don't know how the conversion is going, but some of the videos are podcasts are going up on rumble at this point so if you want to watch them over there you can and with all that said there's only one more thing to say stay safe don't die